Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, which is not Romans, as you've noticed. I'll explain why we're in Matthew chapter 15 in just a moment. We're going to look at a short encounter with Jesus, starting in verse 21, as you're finding that. Let me just add uh, my sentiment to what Will mentioned about this week with Pastor Raphael Kajubi being with us. In fact, Raphael's wife, Alan, and one of his daughters will be with him as they're visiting us this week. And I, I really cannot tell you how excited I am for us as a church family to be able to hear from Raphael this Wednesday night and then on Sunday and then Sunday evening along with the cars and the Orliches and also his wife Alan will be sharing a little bit about their experience in Kampala, Uganda where they are from. He is doing a fantastic work there. The, the, the largest Muslim mosque in sub-Sahara Africa is about a mile from where Pastor Raphael ministers in the heart of Kampala there, maybe a little bit more than a mile. But there is a vast growing Muslim influence in Kampala, Uganda. There is a massive school that is, has been funded by Gaddafi, the old Egyptian leader, and uh, they really are buying the hearts and minds of the population there by educating the children, and in the shadow of this huge Islamic school in this poor borough outside of Kampala, Pastor Raphael is giving his, he's a brilliant man, and he's giving his life away to minister amongst these people, his people, and to uh, start a church there, and also to have a school for deaf children that otherwise had, would they not have this opportunity to go to school? that's affiliated with his church, they would be really cast out and just left uh, as victims in society and whatever, whatever happens to them. So I'm really encouraged, I just am so thankful that this brother will be here with us. And I want you to come and I want you to hear his heart. And uh, so, so mark your calendars for this Wednesday and for this Sunday and, um, and, I, I, and pray that God would do wonderful things with us as the Kajubis minister to us. So I want us to look at Matthew 15 and this story of Jesus and his interaction with this woman, this Gentile Canaanite woman. And we're hitting the pause button in Romans after we finish Romans chapter 6 because really of a couple things that are coming up. One is Raphael's coming next week and then we're going to take the first couple weeks of November to share with you about some exciting hopes and dreams and visions that we have for this upcoming year. We have talked about it very briefly in the past, in the, in the last few months, but the beginning of November, I'm going to preach a message about us as a church sending out a church plant here in Columbus with Will Hawk pastoring that work, and then the Sunday following that, Will will, will preach a vision message about what's on his heart for this church plant, and we are praying that God would send a core group of people from Crosspoint 
along with whosoever would come to this new church to be planted. And we'll talk more about the details of that. And so we are praying that God would, would lift our eyes and, and, and encourage us to have a vision, not just for the nations, as we've heard about this morning from the cars already, but also our neighbors here in this city. And we think one of the most effective ways to reach our city is to have new churches to be planted, to have more gospel-centered churches. And so we're going to be speaking about that in November, and then we're get, we'll get into December shortly after that, and we'll, we'll talk about Jesus' incarnation and the coming of Christ, and then we'll pick back up in Romans, Lord willing, at the beginning of the year in January in 2018, and we'll dive back into Romans chapter 7. This morning, I want us to look at this encounter with Jesus, particularly because it gives us a picture of this bold faith of this Gentile Canaanite woman. And why, why is this text, this story that I'll read in just a moment, particularly important for us at this juncture in our life as a church as we've been walking through Romans? I think for this reason. For this past year, really beginning in January, so for the past 10 months, we have been marinating in the beauty and the glory and the God-centeredness of the message of Romans. And that is a wonderful thing. We've seen the good doctrine, the, the beauty of the sovereign grace of God that we, by nature, are dead in our sins and there's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves on our own to make ourselves right with God. But the spectacular good news of the gospel is that God makes a people for himself through his son, Jesus Christ, through his free grace through Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary death on the cross where Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that was barreling down on all humanity and Jesus absorbs it for those that are his, for his people and turns it into favor and now calls all of his people to come out of death into life. That's grace and now as a gift of his grace gives them faith by which then they are able to behold him and see him and trust in him and be justified, to be made right with God. And now this enabling free grace of God that gives the faith that we now are justified by doesn't just save us past tense, but it enables us to live for him, to say no to our old way of life and yes to God and to become more and more like him in our life remaining here on this earth. That's called sanctification. Until we stand before him on that day when Jesus comes back or we pass away and we are with him and that is called glorification. So we've been seeing this great theology, this great God-centered theology in Romans. And sometimes the danger is good theology can kind of cul-de-sac in our hearts and produce a kind of contentedness. And I want us to see this story of this Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who, although she doesn't have necessarily all of the theology that the disciples of Jesus maybe had, she instinctively had this boldness that good theology should produce. And she has an assertiveness and a passion and a tenacity that the free grace of God should produce in us. So with that as a background, let me read Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and then we're going to work back through this text. And Jesus, verse 21, 
went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let me read verse 26 again. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What a scene. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. Father, thank you for this encounter with Jesus that you caused Matthew to record for us to learn from, to be encouraged by, to be instructed by. I pray that you'd do that now. Lord, in this room are people that do not know you, I pray that they, by your sovereign grace, would come to faith in Jesus, that you would cause their spiritual blindness to turn into sight. I pray, Lord, for those that are in this room that are weary, that do know you, that are trusting in Jesus. Lord, fan into flame the gift of faith that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you do all of this for the glory of your name, for the good of your people that we might be more like Christ, that we'd be more pleasing to you, and we'd walk in more joy. I pray that you do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look at verse 21. It's important for us to note here that Jesus went away from this region that, it was ha- that he was at, and this is right on the heels of Jesus being by the Sea of Galilee, which was a very Jewish region, And in Matthew chapter 14, he had just fed 5,000 people, primarily a Jewish audience. And he, after feeding 5,000 people, primarily Jews again, he walks on water and then he heals more sick people. In the beginning of Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, he has this exchange with these religious Pharisees who are condemning him for for not following their traditions, and, and then he gives them a, a, a really a rebuke about what truly defiles a person. And here in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus leaves this Jewish region, and he goes to this region that would have been very north of where the Jews lived, and it was an area that was populated primarily by Gentile people. Why is that important for us to see? Because he's going outside of the Jewish community intentionally, He knows where he's going, and he knows the type of people that he is going to encounter there. And in fact, he does. In verse 22, we see that he encounters this Canaanite woman. 
In fact, Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman from the region. She came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, what's significant about this is that here is this Canaanite woman. And Matthew uses the word Canaanite, which is different from the word that Mark uses in his gospel. In Mark chapter 7, Mark records this story. And he refers to this woman as a Syrophoenician woman, which is what, where the region was that, that she was living. It would kind of like her, you know, maybe being called an American, but American isn't a nationality. It's a, it's a sort of geographical reference. And, and Matthew, though, is referring to her ethnicity. And that would, would be particularly poignant to a Jewish audience. And Matthew's gospel is primarily written to a Jewish audience. In fact, Matthew's gospel is full of allusions to fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. It's really instructing the Jewish listeners about how Jesus is their Messiah, but yet he's for all peoples. And so Matthew uses this word, not Syrophoenician, to designate kind of her geographical location, but her ethnicity. She's a Canaanite. And the Canaanites in the Old Testament were, were enemies of God's people. They, they were the bad guys. They were the guys that God's people were continually plagued by. And here she is approaching Jesus. And even that, even him interacting with her would have been a kind of defilement according to the tradition of the religious leaders of God's people. And Jesus inter interacts with this enemy of God's people in the Old Testament a woman that he shouldn't even have been talking to, and she cries out. She's not even a Jew, but she calls him Lord, son of David. So she is, in, in a sense, even in her undiscipled sort of state, recognizing who Jesus is and alluding to him according to his correct Jewish title, she has, in just this instant, really better theology in many ways than the religious leaders of the day who were criticizing Jesus for not following their traditions. In fact, what's, what's noteworthy is that Jesus' interactions with his disciples, not, not just the religious leaders of the day who got it terribly wrong, but even his disciples that he was with in, in the stories leading up to this scene with this woman and then the stories right after it, his disciples never are really calling Jesus Lord, but here she is acknowledging who he is. And I think the writer, Matthew the writer, is, is Three times in this little scene, we'll see her call him Lord, and she gets who he is even when his disciples forget who he is. And here's this woman who had no business talking to Jesus, who Jesus had no business talking to, who comes to him and cries out to him. And then listen how he interacts with her. This is not how you think it would go. But he did not answer her a word. I mean, this kind of cuts against the grain of the, uh, the soft sort of um, Andy Gibb looking Jesus with feathered blonde hair and blue eyes. Looks like he just got out of the tanning bed. Just kind of, you know, always welcoming, right? And, you know, he looks just so handsome and so soft and just, and he doesn't, he doesn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. In other words, this lady is causing a scene, and she is interrupting our program. She's not on our agenda. 
She's a Gentile. She has no business messing up our flow. Verse 24, then Jesus, you'd think at this point he'd be like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, 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 don't, don't be so rude to her. Verse 24, Jesus ratchets up the intensity of this encounter. He, he makes it even seemingly more awkward. He says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what do we make of Jesus' response here? That's, that's, on the surface, kind of puzzling, isn't it? It feels a little abrasive and even a little dismissive. Maybe not a little dismissive, maybe a lot dismissive. Well, to understand what's going on here at this point in Matthew and why Jesus would respond to her, I think a couple things are going on. And one, the first thing that's going on, is we need to understand the unfolding plan of redemption in the Bible. We need to see how God has arranged redemption of all peoples to unfold. And it should give us a kind of appreciation that the whole message of the Bible is really one great grand narrative. It's one great grand story. The Bible is not a collection of sort of archaic books that are put together that have moral stories to tell us. It is one unfolding plan of redemption. And so we read all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, right after the fall, where God is in the garden and he speaks to Adam and Eve and he speaks to the devil. And he says to Adam and Eve and the devil, he says that there's going to come a seed from this woman, Eve, right after the fall. And he says that this seed from this woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so right away, we have this, this shadow promise of this rescue. It seems like in the garden, the serpent has won, the devil has won, God's creation, these two Humans, the first humans, our first parents, Adam and Eve, have fallen. They are about to get excommunicated from God's presence. And God is, in a shadow form, preaching, really, the gospel for the first time, saying that redemption is on the way, and it's going to come through this woman. It's going to come in the form of a seed, a child, from this woman. And this child is going to eventually crush the head of this serpent. And then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, where God picks it, he chooses, he elects this man, not because of anything good in him, but simply because of his grace. God chooses this man, Abram, who was wandering in the desert with his family, worshiping other gods. And he chooses Abram, and he says, I am going to make you a great nation. Later on, his name becomes Abraham in Genesis. But at this point, God speaks to Abram, and he says, I'm going to make a nation through you. And through this nation, they are going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so at the very beginning of the Bible, even after the fall, we see God promising redemption and salvation, not just for a people that he would select, in this case, the Jews in the Old Testament, but for all the peoples, all that would come to faith in him. And he's going to make a people so that through those people, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, so that through those people, they would be the means by which he blessed all the peoples. And that's the progression 
That's the progression of the Old Testament. How God is making a nation so that through those people, he could bless all the peoples of the earth. Well, we know the story. We see the unfolding plan of God. That that God is making a people so that through those people, he would bless all the peoples. And we see the church really fulfilling that in many ways, taking up, becoming the true new Israel. And we are becoming, we with the Jews now are the true Jews that are carrying forth this unfolding plan of redemption that all centers on Jesus, who is the seed that was promised in the garden. See, that seed that was promised Adam and Eve is not just a military Jewish leader, but it is ultimately the seed which is Christ. And now all those that are in Christ are this one new people, and through him, God will bless. Well, at this point, in the unfolding plan of identifying who Jesus is, God is still gathering. He's still constituting his people. He's still gathering a church. And so Jesus isn't quite ready because he hasn't fulfilled all righteousness and died on a cross and risen. He isn't quite ready to just sort of throw the plan out there. And so he's, he's still gathering these early Jewish followers of him that would become the, the foundation of the New Testament church. And so Jesus puts her off. So that's, that's in one sense of what's going on there. But in a second sense, I think, and this is primary, Jesus is actually sovereignly directing this conversation to draw something out of this woman to be a kind of rebuke to those of us that have good theology that don't have her tenacity. And he says to her, I'm sorry, lady, but I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. But she came in verse 25 and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. What what a prayer. Lord, help me. Notice the tenacity of her faith. She's already had to deal with these 12 guys who are trying to shoo her away. And when she gets to Jesus, he doesn't seem to be very helpful. I mean, have you ever, peer pressure can be a powerful thing. When you're trying to get something done and there's a bunch of people that are kind of giving you the stink eye. I mean, woe be the person who doesn't like have, you know, their little super saver Winn-Dixie number when they get to the front of the line and, you know, or maybe you want to swap out some brand of bread or something and you've got five people behind you in the line at Publix and you're going to cause those people to wait an extra two minutes. I mean, that's, that's, we just, don't we just all kind of get nervous like, oh, no, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And here she's coming to Jesus and she's got 12 disciples rolling their eyes, giving her the stink eye and she don't care. <laughs> I love it. It's like, I don't even know who you are. And she gets to Jesus, and he puts her off. <laughs> and she, you know how she responds to that? Oh, man, Jesus doesn't understand who I am and everything I've been through. And No, she, she gets down on her knees And she's still pressing through. She's still tenacious. She says, Lord, help me. Listen to what he says in verse 26. 
he ratchets it up even another level. Disciples giving her the stink eye, Jesus putting her off, verse 26, and he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Thank you, Jesus. That's very helpful. <laughs> Verse 27. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. All right. Jesus called the woman a dog. Okay, let's just get that out there. Jesus just called this woman a dog. And I spent some time reading this week about, I guess this word that Jesus used in the original language is actually, you know, it's not like a wild dog. It's more like an affectionate term, like a puppy, like a house dog. Kind of trying to soften it up. Okay, but Jesus called her a dog. While the disciples are giving her the stink eye, and after he says, I'm not really here for you. And all of this is part of this plan, I think, by Jesus to bring something out of her. And what does she say? She elbows her way through all of that, and she says, okay, fine, but I'll eat some crumbs. She, she had not read Calvin's Institutes or Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. She had no John Piper books. She, she did not have Good theology in the sense that the disciples did, but she elbowed her way through it, and she says, there's something in me. I don't know how it got there. I know who you are. I'm going to elbow my way through the basket, and I'm going to grab the rebound, and I'm going to stuff it back in there. I'll take crumbs. One, one commentator on this, this, this text says something really poignant. I think it's so true. He, he says, this reaction of this woman is something that he defines as rightless assertiveness, which is so contrary to kind of Western culture. Generally in the West, where we are very sensitive to individualism and our rights, we, we would be very put off by being reacted to in this way. And we would say, wait a minute, now I, I deserve this because I'm a human being. And she, she takes it the other way. She, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve based on my humanity or my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And I need it now because my daughter's sick. And you're the only person that can help me. And how, how does Jesus respond to her? Verse 28. And it's not, I, I just, I, you know, this, this complexity of the person of Jesus is, is mesmerizing to me. It's, 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 a, it's a mystery that we can never figure out. It's one of the great beauties of Scripture. I mean, there are some difficult truths in the Bible. The, 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 the timelessness of God, the sovereignty of God. But one of the most beautiful and one of the most rich and one of the most mysterious is just the nature of Jesus and his person. He's fully God 
Will read for us from Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. He is the creator. Through him all things were created. He is God, and yet he's fully man. He was tired. He was hungry, and, and yet he is arranging what's going on here in the intersection of Jesus' divinity and humanity, where he is interacting with this woman in this way. I don't understand it all, but I believe that Christ is, Jesus is orchestrating this whole interaction with this woman to be a kind of rebuke against his disciples to say this, this is what faith should look like. This is what your knowledge of me should look like. And I think he's arranging. I don't think this surprised Jesus. I think he's going there for a mission. I think he knows where he's going. I think he knows who he's going to interact with. I think he wasn't tired. I think he wasn't rude to this woman and it just ended up good. I think Jesus is superintending all of this. The triune God is causing this to happen to teach us something about what we should be like. And it says in verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So let's just zoom out for a second before we we land this. I want us to notice the contrast that Matthew is pointing us to in this section. in In these few chapters that surround this scene that we just read. In Matthew chapter 14... Jesus has just fed 5,000 primarily Jewish people in this audience that was hearing him teach and they were hungry. And he followed that up by walking on the water. And his disciples were there. His disciples, this is important to note, his disciples were present. In fact, they were the distributors of the the food that he miraculously provided for these 5,000 people in Matthew chapter 14. And then they saw him walk on water. And then we get to Matthew chapter 15. And we see this interaction with this Canaanite woman. And then, after he has this interaction with this Canaanite woman, let me read to you the the last little paragraph there in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 32. Okay, so he's fed 5,000 people, primarily Jews. He walked on water. Matthew 14. He has this interaction with this Canaanite woman in this northern region, far away from where he was. And then in verse 32 of Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been, this is a new crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away lest they faint on the way. And the, I mean, verse 33, come on. And the disciples said to him, okay, before I read the rest of verse 33, this is after he just fed 5,000 people. Have I, I think I've repeated myself about four times. Let's go five. This is after he just fed 5,000 people in Matthew 14 and followed that up by walking on the water. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread? I mean, I can't even read it with a straight face. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? I don't know. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. 
And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Have I mentioned that in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus fed 5,000 people and walked on water? And at the end of Matthew chapter 15, he feeds 4,000 people. This time the audience is primarily Gentiles. We know that because of Mark's account of this miracle. He says that Jesus was in near the region of Decapolis, which was a collection of 10 cities that was primarily populated by Gentiles, which is where these people came from. And so you have the feeding of this Jewish audience in Matthew 14. You have the feeding of this Gentile audience at the end of Matthew 15. And you have this analogy of this woman willing to eat crumbs from the master's table. What, what's going on here? What's going on here is it's this kind of rebuke of his disciples who were dense compared to this woman who was daring in her faith. Our good theology that we've been basking in in Romans, dear ones, should make us more bold, more assertive, more willing to take risks for God. I think that's the point of this text. That's why under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew positions this scene with this woman in between these two encounters of the feeding of the multitudes and the disciples who just didn't seem to get it. It's a kind of warning to us through the ages. Don't let your proximity and your closeness to Jesus produce in you a kind of complacency, but be chastened, be encouraged, be spurred on by this woman who was such an unlikely candidate for Jesus to do anything for her that she elbowed her way through and she expected Jesus to move because she didn't have enough theology to mess her up. And she pressed in and she said, I, I, I don't know a lot of things, but I know that you are the Lord, son of David, and that I need you. And, and I, I think we should be chastened and encouraged and spurred on by her example. There are so many areas that I, I am so thankful. You know, uh, planting a church, we planted this church 12 years ago, and I've been reliving some of these things through my mind as I think about Will launching a, a new church out of Crosspoint in the days ahead, Lord willing, and I think about just how I feel emotionally about Crosspoint, and it's so hard. I, it's, it's, like, it's like raising a child. I, I'm too critical and too... Um, you just don't have a good, like, objective view of, of your own child. You're either too critical or you're too generous, you know? And that's kind of how I am with Crosspoint. I just, I don't even know how to see it straight. I, people ask me about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we, we're going to try and have church this Sunday. That's about all I can, that's about all I can say. But there's so many areas about Crosspoint that I'm so thankful for. By God's grace, we've been uh, just blessed with health, um, just, just, just the theology that God has led us into, I think is so, so good and healthy from the Bible. I think just the way we do things here uh, is, 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 is not perfect, but it's, it's wise and it's Christ-centered and it's, 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 it's just done well. 
the way we care for people. I'm just so, I'm so encouraged I, by just hearing little anecdotes through the week of people caring for one another and people being in difficult spots and us not having to have some sort of formal, organized, centralized sort of plan, just people feeling the burden of the gospel and what it means to be in community and, and caring for one another and, and genuine just authenticity uh, in the life of the church and, and people even just being encouraged by, by the cars and the Orliches, two couples from Crosspoint deciding to give their lives to the service of the gospel to people in other nations and to think about all the short-term missions we're going on here that hopefully will spur on long-term missions involvement and, and all, all of this wonderful, fruitful, just beautiful things that are going on here, and I'm so thankful for that. But as I analyze my own heart 12 years in, as I think about where we are and where I can grow, and, and maybe where we can grow as a church, as we bask in all of the goodness that God has given us, it would be that we would grow in this type of faith that this Canaanite woman has that is full of expectancy and full of persistence. That, that, the, that the feeding that God has given us, that he has miraculously fed us as he fed the Jews in Matthew 14, but that, that would produce in us as his disciples a kind of confidence and expectancy that doesn't push us back into comfort, but presses us forward into persistence. Because the, the days are short and the task is huge and the privilege is wonderful and the joy is satisfying and God is worthy and, and it's there for us. And then I think about all of the, the situations in the life of this church and people that are walking through difficult things and relationship troubles and unbelieving loved ones and marriages that are on the brink and I think God Stir in us. Let the theology of Romans not cause us to be academic, analytical Christians, but let it produce in us a kind of risk-taking, persistent boldness that says, Lord, help me and help us. So I end with just a few passages from Hebrews and, and we'll... We'll pray. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews, first chapter four. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So in other words, we have a Jesus who we needed a priest to atone for our sin. And, and Jesus not only became the priest that brings the sacrifice to God, he, he is the sacrifice himself. And unlike the bulls and the goats of the Old Testament that had to be offered yearly, Jesus once and for all, because he is perfect, atoned for our sin and made us right with God and has put us in a position where we are no longer aliens, but we are now adopted children of God. That's the gospel. That's what our faith accesses us to. 
as a result of that, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But let us be like that Canaanite woman who is elbowing her way in saying, Jesus, help me. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, in other words, the only way that we're made right with God is not because of our goodness, not because we're from the South, not because we live in the Bible Belt, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross to bear the justice of God on our behalf. And he has made us alive, as Ephesians 2 says. He has taken us from death to life. He's given us faith that we can then exercise in him and live for him because of that, because of what Jesus has done by the new and living way, verse 20, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, Jesus has done it. So let's come on, let's link arms with brothers and sisters. That's why we need the local church. That's why God has put us in a family. And let's press in and pray. Let's, as William Carey said, the great missionary to India, let's, let's expect great things from God. Let's attempt great things for God because of the gospel, because of who we are. And then Hebrews 11 verse 6, verse six and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And there's just something about good theology that if we're not careful with it, it can kind of make us passive. Oh, well, faith is a gift. God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. Okay. But that should have an effect on me like it had on this Canaanite woman, and it should make me press, press into God all the more. I don't know what that looks like. I think maybe for some of us it looks like we should not just kind of watch our watches and pick up our Bibles and run out of here and go watch football. Maybe it means that we should pray. But it's not just all about two hours that we gather here on Sunday. It's, it's about people getting together. It's about, it's, about, it's about expecting great things from God and attempting great things from God. And it's, it's about elbowing your way in and saying, Jesus, you have mercy. Have mercy on me. I know that you can do this. You're the only one that could do this. And I am willing to eat crumbs. Because crumbs, when they come from Jesus, satisfy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, just the, the manifold gifts and graces that you've given us. May your goodness to us not be squandered but may it produce in us a tenacious persistence and risk-taking type of faith because if we have Christ, we have all and there's nothing to lose. 
So give us the faith and the tenacity of this Canaanite woman. There are wonderful gospel-centered things that this church should be about and do in the coming days, planting churches, sending more missionaries, proclaiming the free grace of God to a world and to a city that's lost in legalism and religion. Lord, fan into flame our expectancy that, use, that you would use us in that way. And there are more situations in this room than I can n- know and number in our personal lives where we need you to help us. And may we not be passive and analytical, but may we be bold and tenacious as we come to you. I pray that you'd help us do this as we respond even now. In Jesus' name, amen.